With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. On this episode of Newt's World, I just finished reading the 13 volumes of Bernard Cornwell's Saxon series, which has been the base for the Netflix series on The Last Kingdom. And I was thrilled because I'd already read twice his entire series on Sharps, his remarkable book on Agincourt, and his nonfiction work on Waterloo. And I had gotten into all this in part because one evening over dinner, General Jim Mattis, who later on became Secretary of Defense, said to me he had never fully understood Waterloo until he read Sharp's Waterloo. And I thought, well, that's a pretty good expert to have give you advice, so I dove in. And I must say, both of these series are amazing. And I don't know which is the more amazing. On the one hand, Bernard Cornwell is able to take you through the Napoleonic Wars, starting with Wellesley in India, and do it in a way that every adventure is interesting, and yet he is really giving you a chance to understand from the long competition between Wellington and the French and what's going on. On the other hand, his study of the Saxon struggle with the Danes the rise of Alfred the Great and the challenges of what's a cultural racial war is just equally astounding. So it is a thrill to me personally to have Bernard Cornwell chat with us. I have to start. You were born in London in 1944, sort of a war baby. Your dad was a Canadian airman. Your mother was in the Women's Auxiliary Air Force of Great Britain. You were adopted by a family in Essex. 
who belonged to a religious sect called the Peculiar People. Then you escaped to London University, and after a period as a teacher, you joined BBC Television, where you worked for a decade. But you ended up falling in love with an American, and she didn't want to move to Britain for family reasons, so you went to the States. The U.S. government, in its infinite wisdom, did not give you a green card, thereby forcing you into a job which has changed history, and you became a professional writer. Now, you'd already been writing for the BBC, but I'm curious, what was it like to suddenly find yourself there at the typewriter banging away at a novel? It was daunting. I mean, I'd never written a novel. I think I'd always wanted to, but I realized that if I was going to marry Judy, I had to stay in America and I had to earn a living. And I thought, oh, well, why not? You always wanted to write a novel, so try. And how did the early novels go in terms of being able to market them and find a publisher and all those things? Well, I was incredibly lucky. I mean, not only in meeting Judy, but I went to a Thanksgiving Day party in New York, and a voice behind me said in very British tones, well, it was. I have to explain that the McDonald's All-America High School Band was marching beneath us playing selections from Oklahoma or something, and the voice said, they do this sort of thing frightfully well, don't they? And I, being a brilliant conversationalist, said, oh, you're English. Yes, he said. I said, what do you do? He said, I'm a literary agent. I said, oh, good. I've just written a novel. Whereupon he used a four-letter word and walked away from me. So I followed him into the room off the veranda. And I said, I've had an offer on this novel. How much, he said. So I told him. He repeated the word and walked away again. So I trapped him another time and said, please, please read my novel. He said, oh, well, dear boy, if you must, meet me in the Oyster Bar at Grand Central Station at noon tomorrow. So I did. And he phoned me that evening. And he just said, how much do you want for this book? And within two weeks, I had a seven-book contract with the publisher. Now, was this the original Sharps, or what was it? It was Sharps Eagle, which was the first one I wrote. And I never dared reread. It's quite a good book. The portrait you draw in there of the stuffy, sanctimonious colonel of the regiment is brilliant. Frankly, as somebody who's occasionally written books, I am shocked that that was your first book, because it's actually quite good. <laughs> Thank you very much. I might try and reread it then. <laughs> but now, you wrote, I think it, I'm accurate, I think it's 18 volumes in the Sharp series. 22. 22, okay. You've got four to go, sir. Well, I'm going to have to go back and figure out. I think I probably miscounted because I bought every one that's on Amazon. So I feel comfortable. I've actually read them. But you also do something which I think is quite remarkable. They're very good writing. They're great adventure stories. The character of Sharp is terrific. And I think you capture Wellesley and then he becomes Wellington very, very well. I spent a lot of time in 1994 studying Wellington and thinking about his campaigns. But then you pivot. And you write what's really a very different kind of series. I mean, The Last Kingdom is an absolutely remarkable portrait of the rise of England and the creation of England, the invention of it in many ways. And you say in part you did this because we tend to skip over that in teaching history. We certainly do in Britain. I mean, I think I had a very good education in Britain, but it more or less begins with 1066, the Norman invasion. And what happened before is skimmed over very, very quickly. And I realized that I actually didn't know how England was created. And I thought, I want to know. So I, for years, read as much as I could about the Saxon period. 
And it's really rather strange. I mean, most countries have an idea of where they come from, and this country has a very, very strong, good idea of where it came from and exactly how it began. But the English really don't know how England came to be. So I thought, well, that's a nice story to tell. You know, I thought in the series that the actor who plays Alfred is as brilliantly perfect as I've ever seen. I'd agree with you. David Dawson. It was a wonderful, wonderful performance. I mean, I'm not sure how much I like Alfred, even though he is, if you like, not quite the creator of England, but England is his idea, and he never lived to see it. But he was a Puritan, a strange man. He was sick all his life. His first love was the church. His second love was scholarship. And yet he waged a successful war against the Viking invasions. So he's a great man. He's the only one in the whole history of Britain who is called the Great. And I think he deserves that, but I'm not sure I like him. He's portrayed as somebody who isn't particularly likable, but whose dedication to duty and sheer intelligence makes him formidable and makes him effective. That's exactly right. He's probably the most intelligent king we ever had. And, I mean, I know there's an awful lot of duds around as well, not much competition for him, but he was an extremely intelligent man, and he used that intelligence as a weapon. It also struck me that he's driven into the marshes by the Danes who capture the castle of Winchester, and then, in effect, has the great comeback out of the marshes. In a way, I don't know if this makes any sense, it's a little parallel to Robert the Bruce being driven into the mountains, ending up in a cave with about a dozen companions watching the spider weave the web and thinking, you know, I guess you just have to keep doing it. And a little bit of Washington crossing the Delaware on Christmas night. There are these mythic moments when normal, reasonable people break and quit. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I'd not thought of those parallels, but you're absolutely right. I mean, it's an extraordinary thought that the English world, its culture, its language that we share, in the year 878, was driven to a refuge in the Athelney Marshes, and it could have been obliterated. And then England would probably have become Daneland, and we might have been speaking in Danish now instead of English. And yet Alfred leads the reaction to that and defeats the Danes at the Great Battle of Eddington. Well, and he somehow combines the church and religious impulse with the ethnic impulse of being Saxon in a way which makes the fight between pagan Danes and the Christian English remarkable and gives him a hidden weapon in the structure of the church. Yes, I mean, his ambition was to make a united England, or he would call it England. He said it combines all those who speak the English tongue, but it was also a religious crusade for him. And if any Dane converted to Christianity, in his mind, that Dane automatically became a friend. And a number of Danes did convert simply to stop him beating them up. Well, and you have most of the characters in the 13 novels are actually real. I looked up Father Bioka, who I think is also brilliantly portrayed in the Netflix series. And, you know, he's real. I mean, he's there and we know his dates. You must do an astonishing level of research. Well, it's nice of you to think so. I mean, I do do a huge amount of research because research is a lifelong project. 
and I'd been reading the Anglo-Saxons for at least 20, 30 years before I even started to write the series. I mean, similarly with Sharp, I'd been reading about Wellington all my life. So a huge amount of research was already tucked away, so to speak. So the one character who is clearly fictional is also the person who carries the whole 13 volumes in the series is Uhtred Bebenberg. And that in itself has a fascinating parallel in your own life. Well, it does, because you mentioned my real parents, and I was in my 50s before I met them. And my father had been in the Royal Canadian Air Force, and was now living in British Columbia. And when I met him, he said, oh, you should see the family tree. And the family tree went all the way back to a man called Ida the Flamebearer. And he was one of the Viking invaders who first captured a fortress that was called Bebenberg. It's now called Bambra. And I found out that his successors were often named Uhtred. There was a whole line of Uhtreds. And that was curious because his surname was Outred, and the name had stuck through over a thousand years. And I'd always wanted to write this series about the creation of England, but most historical novels have, a, if you like, a big story and a little story. And if you think of Gone with the Wind, the big story is the Civil War. The little story is whether Scarlet can save Tara. And you flip them. You put the little story in the foreground and the big story in the background. So I had the big story. I didn't have a little story. And I thought, well, I've got an ancestor who was part of that. That's my little story. And how did he hold on to Bebenberg? And that became the story. Have you visited Bebenberg? I visited Bamberg many, many times and love it. And I think the last visit, I actually met the owner. It's a huge castle, a beautiful, enormous castle, mostly restored in the 19th century. The pictures I've seen, it looks like it must have been amazingly formidable in the Middle Ages. It was totally formidable. It was eventually destroyed, I think, in the Civil War by cannon fire, but it's been rebuilt since. And I said to the owner, you do realize that this castle once belonged to us and it was stolen from us by treachery in 1016 and I said obviously if you've got a shred of honor you have to return it and he said to me let me show you the heating bills and I said I surrender keep it <laughs> we went to the castle which is where they filmed Downton Abbey and there was a similar conversation if only you knew what it takes to sustain one of these estates and just at a practical level but now Uhtred who I think is brilliantly portrayed actually by a German actor, but it's just astonishing, I think, how good a job he does. Oh, I agree with you. Alexander, I know, was born in Germany. He's the most complicated man. He now, like me, lives in the United States and speaks perfect English. And I always think of him as English, but I guess he is really German. He affects a kind of unusual accent in the series. Yes, he does. When they made the series, they tried very hard to have Scandinavians playing most of the Danish or Viking parts, and English actors like David Dawson playing the Saxon parts, and I think that worked very well. Yeah, it really did. I mean, how, what does it feel like to see your writing up on a screen? <laughs> I feel very detached from it. I mean, I watch it on Netflix, just like everybody else, and Occasionally, my wife gets confused by a story point. She says, what's happening? I said, I don't know. I only wrote the books. Somebody once said you have to have a certain discipline to realize that when they buy the right to the book, they have bought the right to the book, and that the requirements of movies are different than the requirements of novels. 
Absolutely, and the people who made The Last Kingdom also made Downton Abbey. Oh, is that right? Yes, so I thought, well, even though I worked in television for 10 years, I know nothing about putting drama on television, so I'll shut up and just stay away from it. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From BBC Radio 4. Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo play you know one of the single volumes for those of our listeners who'd like to sort of put a toe in before they pick up 13 and 22 volume series but one of your single volumes which i think is really really helpful is agincourt i think it's very well done and of course it's one of the decisive battles of the middle ages how did you come to it and what's your sort of reflection on it? I think I came to it through a fascination with the war bow, the longbow, which was, if you like, the secret weapon. I mean, much as Sharp fights the French with a rifle, and the French didn't use rifles, they didn't like them, but the British had learned a lesson in North America about rifles, and so they formed a rifle brigade. And the rifle brigade was, if you like, a secret weapon, which was used to great effect during the whole Napoleonic Wars. And the longbow was similar. And I spent a long time finding all I could out about longbows. And then I thought, well, the obvious book to write is Agincourt, which is the great victory of the longbow. What's intriguing to me is you get in Poitiers, Crecy, and in Agincourt, the French commit exactly the same mistake three times over the course of a century. Yes, and they did exactly the same in the Napoleonic Wars. 
Right, that's what I was going to say. The parallel here, they never understand the military crest. They never understand that the line will always defeat the column when you have guns. And I think Wellington said about Waterloo something like, they came up the same old way and we put them back the same old way. I was about to quote that to you. <laughs> exactly what he said. What is it you think about, I don't know if it's a French cultural phenomenon, in the case of Poirier and Crecy and Agincourt, the defeats are so annihilating that you would think that the French aristocracy would decide at some point to quit just getting killed. Well, you would hope so. I think they did try and adapt to it. I mean, at Poitiers and indeed at Agincourt, they made their attack on foot. And of course, they had a great belief in their armor because as longbows got more and more deadly, so armor became thicker and more effective but not effective enough. And the same in the Napoleonic Wars. They had worked out a device to defeat the British line, but it never worked. They kept on trying it. I mean, their way of doing that was to advance in column and then to deploy into line at the last moment. But the last moment was always too late and turned out to be their last moment. Well, at the same time, just as the longbow requires an amazing level of practice and strength, and also, I was sort of surprised by this. I went from your novel to several nonfiction works on the Agincourt. The scale of logistics to provide enough arrows for the longbow led to sort of strict regulation of having enough geese to have enough feathers. I mean, there's this entire national defense industry behind the longbow. And it's very, very impressive. Every county had to produce so many. And so the blacksmiths had to produce so many arrowheads. Foresters had to produce the ash shafts. And as you say, the goose feathers. And the feathers on an arrow all had to come from the same wing of the goose. Otherwise, it wouldn't work. And then they were assembled and sent to London. And then they were packed in barrels and sent over to France. But they literally did millions of arrows. And luckily, they had them. Yeah, that's what I was thinking is that it's not just the ability of a marksman, it's the fact that they could saturate the field with so many arrows. Yes, and a good longbowman could shoot up to 15 arrows a minute. In fact, the longbow is so effective that Wellington wrote to the war office during the Napoleonic Wars and said, why can't we have longbows? And the answer was, well, there are not enough men trained and strong enough to use them. Stick with your musket. Yeah, and of course, you then would have to have recreated the entire arrow industry to produce enough arrows. You would. And in fact, Ben Franklin suggested longbows during the revolution. That's amazing. As being much more effective than muskets. I mean, I get the sense that you feel that Henry V was going to win, that it wasn't quite the gamble that people in retrospect have suggested. Henry had enormous faith in his archers, enormous faith, and in his men. The other thing that amused me about Agincourt is we have Shakespeare's great speech before the battle, and it's still held up as one of the great pre-battle speeches. In fact, what he said, and there are two witnesses to this, his words were, let's go, fellas. That was the speech? That was it. Let's go, fellas. And Tom Brady, I notice, always on the sidelines, is saying, let's go. Great leaders don't change much. That's really wild. I had not known that. Now I'm crushed because I thought it was such a great speech when Shakespeare wrote it. It was. So where do you go next? What are you working on? I'm working on the 23rd Sharp. Ah. 
And will this be a post-Napoleon, or will it just take us back into? Taking us back into the Peninsular War. I always think Sharp is at his best when he's in Spain. No, I think that's right. And I think he's at his best when he is junior. I think towards the very end when he's... It's a little bit like what happens to Hornblower. I mean, there's something about achieving too much rank that you lose some of the cutting edge, I think. I don't know if Sharp loses it, but I'll have a look. Well, I'm looking forward to that coming out because it's so remarkable. Now, what led you to go back and write the nonfiction Waterloo? Well, it was partly the fact that the bicentenary of the battle was coming up, and there hadn't been what I thought of as a good popular nonfiction book on Waterloo since David Howarth's book, A Near Run Thing, which I think was published back in 1964. And I thought, well, there may well be a market for this. And the battle has always fascinated me. I mean, history doesn't usually supply you with a really neat story, but Waterloo is exactly that. I mean, we don't know which way that battle is going to go until the very last moment and the sun is already fading when the Imperial Guard makes its huge attack. So it's one, a brilliant story, and two, I think it needed to be retold in a form that made it accessible to anybody. Do you think Wellington was not sure how the battle was going to go? I'm sure he was. I mean, he wasn't a man given to nervousness, but he later confessed he was nervous. I mean, as he said, it was a near-run thing. And throughout the day, he kept looking off to his left to see if the Prussians were going to arrive. And on the other hand, he did have enormous faith in his British infantry. Give me enough of those, he said before the battle, and I'll win. And he didn't have enough. I mean, only 33,000 of his men came from the British infantry battalions. And the rest were of dubious value. Well, and they also, much like with the Longbow, they practiced musketry on a scale that nobody else did. Yes, they were the only nation that actually, and I can't speak for the USA in this because I don't know, they probably did the same, that allowed men to actually practice with live rounds. Most armies simply went through the motions of loading cocking the gun and snapping the trigger on an empty chamber. But the British advantage was their speed of fire. They could fire a musket faster than the French. I imagine the Americans were the same because they're not foolish. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. 
Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. The other thing to go back to the last game, there are two aspects to it that I thought was fascinating. One was you really pick up on the notion of what the Romans had left behind and the difference in the scale of life, the quality of work. It comes up a number of times, and it got me to thinking about it. I mean, I was aware of it. We just spent three and a half years in Rome where my wife was the ambassador to the Vatican. And so you had this sense of the splendor that was the empire at its peak. But you really drive home the dramatic decline in capabilities, whether it's building a house, building a bridge, you name it. Yeah, well, that's in the Anglo-Saxon poetry. The poets often express astonishment at the Roman buildings that are left behind and the realization that they can't do it. This is a great civilization that has faded and gone. And there's a feeling throughout Anglo-Saxon poetry that the world is declining into more and more darkness and horror. But, I mean, if you were a Saxon warrior and you walked into Colchester or Bath or even London, what you see are these magnificent buildings. Okay, they're decaying and some of them have fallen down, but they nevertheless are witness to a civilization that you just don't have any notion how to recreate. I mean, the Saxons built in timber and thatch and the Romans leave behind marble. We visited Bath a couple of years ago, and you still have the Roman pools there today. They're still there, and there are still places in England where the Roman walls are standing. And the Saxons often are very grateful for that. They move into Roman fortresses like Chester. We spent some time on Hadrian's Wall a few years ago, and it's fascinating because, again, you capture this in a very interesting way. I mean, the Scots are clearly different, and in a sense, frighten even the Vikings. Absolutely. I mean, to quote Wellington, I don't know what they do to the enemy, but by God, they terrify me. I think that was actually said of an Irish regiment, but the Scots are the same. I mean, the Scots have always been fanatical fighters, and they're great enemies to the Saxons. Well, and you communicate that Ireland is unconquerable because the willingness to fight is so widespread. And the fact is that it's sufficiently disorganized that there's no way for the Vikings to defeat somebody and gain control. Well, the Vikings try very hard because they found Dublin, and much of Eastern Ireland becomes a Viking kingdom, but it doesn't last. They get thrown out. In a parallel, which I had not realized until I read your books, the Welsh, in a sense, are Arthur's people. They're Christians, but so were the Scots. 
Yes, the Welsh are less formidable an enemy to the Saxons, although they were enemies to the Saxons, than the Scots. And Wales, of course, means foreigners. When we say Wales, we think Cornwall is the land of the Cornish foreigners. And I guess because of the mountains, they're relatively unconquerable. They're relatively unconquerable. That's going to have to wait until the Middle Ages. But they're great cattle raiders and great raiders across the border. So they're a constant thorn in the Saxon side. It's really fascinating. And you capture this whole sense of the, of the Danes and all of the northern peoples. Nowadays, we say Norwegians. Then you have the Scots. Then you have the Irish. Then you have the Welsh. And then you have the people who become the English. And they're all sort of tension all the way around. <laughs> Absolutely. And yet they all meld, and it really is a melting pot. And one of my favorite characters, though he's not very big, is Ida, a priest who is, in fact, the son of Danish immigrants and becomes the first Dane to be Archbishop of Canterbury. I mean, that's how they assimilated so fast. And, I mean, England is a terrible mess, if you like, of language and immigrants. And much of the north and the east of the country, still many of the place names are Danish names. And many of the words in English are Danish words. We don't eat Aaron for breakfast, we eat eggs. And we assimilated a huge amount of the Danish language into English. Then after 1066, of course, we introduced a lot of French words too. And of course, 1066 is actually the Danes by way of Normandy. It is indeed, yes. I mean... William the Conqueror was a grandson of Rollo the Viking, and Normandy takes its name from the northern people. And in between, you end up with Canute the Great. Canute the Great, who stole Bebenberg from my family. So that's where the theft occurs. In 1016. But he's apparently equally extraordinary. I think Canute is extraordinary, yes. Maybe a temptation somewhere down the road. A temptation indeed, yes. He went native. Is that part of how he holds together? Because he has a pretty big kingdom. He has a pretty big empire. Yeah. I think he holds it together by sheer skill. I mean, there are some who say that Canute should be the great, too. Although he obviously would not be an English king in that sense. But he was the emperor of that whole region. He was indeed the king of England and emperor of his own sort of northern territory. And then that all gets subsumed by the Normans, who themselves ultimately are assimilated. I mean, we don't end up speaking French in England. <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> Since many people have your books as collections, do you have any collections yourself? Is there anybody you've collected? Absolutely. I collect Lee Child and John Sanford. I'm a huge fan of John Sanford, who was actually born on exactly the same day as I was. That's amazing. I have both sets also. I once met Sanford, and I think he has a remarkable insight into human nature. He does, absolutely. And Lee Child, you simply can't put down. If you're a writer, there are pretty good people just to get into the rhythm of good writing. Well, that's true. I always end up, when I read both of them, just envious. I think, how can I do that? And I suspect they read you, and they're envious. Well, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> One last question as somebody who also writes on occasion. Do you have a particular system for how you write or a particular schedule? I have a schedule, but not a system. I mean, the schedule is to start work first thing in the morning and keep going until it's time for a drink in the evening. As for a system, no. 
I can't plan a book. I wish I could. It would, I think, make life a lot easier. So I tend to start off by throwing Sharp or Uhtred or whoever it is into a small crisis and see how he gets out of it and then see what happens after that. So I wake up every morning thinking, I don't know what's going to happen today, and I just find out. Well, and you have this technique of there will be about a half chapter of a crisis. I'll get my breath as the reader, and there's a new crisis. And many of them are very, very inventive and come at you from angles that you've never dreamed of. <laughs> That's nice. <laughs> it's one of the things I find fascinating about how you write, that you're not only capturing big things, and as you put it, big stories and big facts, but you somehow manage to be a great storyteller, which I always think as a guy who used to teach history, I think one of the great tragedies is if you have a historian who can't tell stories. Absolutely. I always claim that I'm not an historian, I'm a storyteller. Well, and I would say you're one of the great storytellers of our lifetime. Well, that's very kind of you. Well, you have a remarkable knack. I admire it greatly. I look forward to your continued production of fascinating books. And I can't tell you what a thrill it was for me personally to be able to chat with you. I spent an amazing number of hours with you. You weren't aware of it, but I was out there day after day reading on airplanes, reading in cars, wherever I had a chance. I work away at Bernard Cornwell, and here you are. So it's really very exciting. And I think we're going to have the largest collection of potential purchases we've ever put up on our show page because we're going to list all of your books. And it's an amazing achievement on your part. And I will say on behalf of readers, I am glad that the United States government refused to give you a green card. And I think it had a second order effect beyond any expectation. I'm very glad too. I'm now an American citizen and still married to the girl who drew me away from England. And obviously it's worked out pretty well for both of you. And it's worked out very well for all of us who are in your fan club. Well, thank you, Mr. Speaker. It's been a privilege and a pleasure meeting you. Thank you to my guest, Bernard Cornwell. We'll have links to his books on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our producer is Rebecca Howe, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.